We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Hey there. If you're listening to this, it means you haven't made it over to my new podcast feed yet. Basically, if you want to continue to keep getting run the numbers on Spotify or iTunes, you need to follow the link in the description. Just expand the description and click the link with the PSA next to it. You can also just search for on the numbers and look for our teal logo, or as my wife likes to call it, seafoam green, which I really can't believe I just said out loud. When you get there, click follow. Please do, because as my financial advisor recently told me, I really need this. It's a living, breathing framework. Data gravity, workflow gravity, and account gravity. Data gravity, think of it as many of the same sort of analogies to the Oracle database account ownership, which is you're the biggest pool of data. The data is the most mission critical. Switching costs are really high. The data tends to be about your most valuable assets, your employees, your customers, and your money, your transactions. Those tend to be really important systems. Workflow gravity is the automation that allows you to do the most important things. Think about the most important jobs to be done. A lot of times it's it's finding customers. Even in low margin businesses where customers may not deliver a lot of profits, those types of gravity, they, they tend to compound. They're not mutually exclusive. The third is more of a kind of common sense viewpoint, which is this, this notion of account gravity. What's the last thing you turn off? What's the most important? What has the most mind share with the owner? The nice part within uh, SMB uh, customers is that oftentimes the owner is the user. And so you have a lot of mindshare with the owner. It allows you to sell that owner multiple things. If you think about mid-market enterprise, getting back this notion of like, hey, who's the functional owner? And what's the control point for that function? It's just a very similar concept as it relates to account ownership. Is this thing on? Yesterday's price is not today's price. Yes, indeed, Fatjo. Yes, indeed. Welcome back to Run the Numbers, where I interview world-class CFOs, operators, and the VCs who fund them on how to get the most out of your company's performance. This podcast is a playbook of sorts for ambitious people in the world of finance, strategy, and ops. Today, my guest is Dave Yon, a legend in the world of vertical SaaS. You may have caught him on Patrick O'Shaughnessy's Invest Like the Best pod last year, which kind of sort of went viral in the nerd community. Dave's invested in the likes of CCC, a behemoth in the auto industry, Toast, a staple in the restaurant space, and Dutchie, a leader in the cannabis sector. Dave's team at Tidemark has invested in more than 20 vertical SaaS companies. More than 13 of those have scaled past 100 million in ARR, 9 through 500 million, 2 approaching 1 billion, and 1 through a billion. So they've run the full gamut of startup life cycles, specifically for SMB and vertical SaaS. Dave and I talk about the importance of owning the control point in vertical SaaS, what data gravity is, and how it gives a company the right to expand its total addressable market over time, what's wrong with the classic vertical SaaS layer cake strategy, and why vertical SaaS companies need to be thinking multi-product early on. Dave also hits us with some cool stories about vertical SaaS companies who relied on creative go-to-market approaches to capture a sector like Fair Harbor in the Torn Activity space. This is a masterclass in how vertical SaaS companies come to dominate a market and a deep dive into the metrics they stay close to along the way. All this and much, much more after a short word from our sponsors. Dave, welcome to the Run of Numbers podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. Dave, we were talking about this before we hit record here, but how many vertical SaaS companies do you think you've invested in in your career or, or even at Tidemark so far? As background, I'm not a vertical SaaS only investor and Tidemark's only uh, is not a vertical SaaS only investment firm, but it is an area that we we just love and we can we can talk through the reasons for that. But yeah, over my career I invested in roughly a dozen vertical SaaS companies. I would put SMB uh, SaaS in there as well because there's lots of parallels. And then across the firm, we've invested in over 20 vertical SaaS companies. The cool thing about it is, and we ran these stats the other day, over the life of the companies, uh, 13 of those, I think it's 22 or 23 companies have scaled beyond 100 million. Uh, two are approaching a billion, one is over a billion. And so the cool part is we've seen these companies at kind of the high single digit 
uh, millions of ARR scale into various different stages of growth and and really reach the end, right? Not not in the sense that they've they've finished the story, but they've really they've really flushed out the full potential of what these platforms can be. And I feel very fortunate to work with a number of great teams and and some really cool platforms. I, I know you don't only invest in vertical SaaS, but I got to say you're up there on my Mount Rushmore for what it's worth. <laughs> Thank you. That's very kind of you. Just for the benefit of the audience, would you mind defining in, in, from your point of view what vertical SaaS is? Because I think there are a lot of definitions flying around and you'd even mentioned it. Some people do get it confused with SMB. So how do you, how do you kind of size up vertical SaaS? I think in some ways it's a simple question. In some ways it's a little bit more nuanced. The simple question is, a company that's building a product in an organization for a single end market. And there's a lot that comes out of building a product for a single type of customer, single use case, which we can get into. I, I think some of the nuances get a little bit more complicated. And so you look at these companies and part of their product is very specific to the industry. Other parts are very similar to what, like there might be a CRM offering that looks almost exactly like Salesforce. There might be a website offering that looks pretty similar to Wix. And so what blend of industry specific, i.e. vertical, what blend of horizontal makes a vertical SaaS company? I, I think there's there's a couple ways to unpack it. In the product itself, there's certain functionalities that tend to be highly, highly specific to a vertical that drive a lot of value to the customers. And that helps define the fact that the business is a vertical SaaS versus a horizontal SaaS company. I think there's also this idea of self-identification where a company puts a stake in the ground and says, I'm building this for restaurants or I'm building this for hotels. And likewise, customers tell themselves, I want to buy a product that's built for me and this company is built for restaurants. And so irrespective of how quote unquote verticalized their product is, there is a, a messaging aspect to it. I think the final nuance that you alluded to is there's a segment issue. Most of what we think about vertical SaaS does overlap with SMB. However, there's plenty of vertical SaaS companies that sell to mid-market enterprise. Pretty different nuances in terms of what the business evolution looks like, what the business models look like, but but I think I think part of the mix as well. And I always get frustrated when people say the vertical SaaS is for SMBs because say you build something for the automotive industry, that's about six to 8% of American GDP on an annual basis. Like I wouldn't call that a small market or SMB. Yeah, for sure. People ask me, is the TAM for vertical class too small? And it's like, that's kind of an odd question because you have some verticals that rival the size of horizontal markets and then actually are probably bigger just by sheer location size and percentage GMB to your point and also the monetization models. And then you have really, really small end markets where there's like 5,000 customers or 2,000 customers. And um, it's, a, it's a very, very different perspective on market size and, and eventual opportunity. This is a great segue. So how does the size of a market change how you think about an investment strategy here? It's a good question. So maybe just a little background on Tidemark, and then I can sort of dovetail into how we think about market size and, and our investment philosophy. Tidemark, our, our goal as a firm is to focus on category leadership and to be flexible with both venture growth equity and private equity DNA so that we can look at different markets, different market structure, different market share, and find the right approach for any context. So for example, if you're investing in a company that maybe the maybe the market size is 5,000 locations and that company has garnered 60, 70% of that market. Well, it's not a venture grow at all costs, you know, greenfield, build out S curves of sales capacity playbook. You should be much more capital efficient. You should think about potential MA financing, potential secondary financing, using leverage, those types of constructs. Nonetheless, you can build a great business out of a very well-established smaller market, right? You think about how you add more to your existing customers, how you sell to your your customer's customer, customer employee, customer suppliers. And you have some of the most interesting, well-protected, high-moat types of platforms available to an investor. So we can go small market. And then there are other markets that are, again, some of these verticals are as big or bigger than horizontal uh, companies. And so there, it, it, it dovetails much more closely with a venture mindset, which is forward invest in sales and marketing capacity, go win locations. And then over time, 
start layering in various different cross-sells and multi-product to increase LTV, to increase TAM margins of growth. So the, the, the playbooks could be quite different. We, we just love companies that are winning their end market, that are serving their end customers with automation and, and multi-product and multi-workflow solutions. And I think there's various different ways of making money. It just depends on, on the, uh, the market structure. And I think what you're alluding to as well, Dave, when you think about this market structure is that even though vertical SaaS to some people, you may say it's tackling a smaller market, it may be possible to gobble up more market share in total because A, there's less competition, but also you're able to monetize multiple components of it or multiple players within your ecosystem. I think both both pieces are true and each of them have very different characteristics than your, your typical horizontal market. We should maybe unpack each of those. When you start to think about the components of, of a market, it does seem to start with, and I'm going to steal a term because I've read all of Tidemark's you know, great literature online, a, a control point, if you will. Is that kind of where it all begins of determining the initial market you're in? You know, I, I don't want to be too prescriptive because we've seen companies innovate around this and we can talk through some of the variants of this. But but generally, yes, you, you we have found that particularly in SMB vertical markets, generally there's one or two systems that are, quote unquote, the control points. These are the most important systems. They're in customers. They touch the most valuable assets and workflows. Uh, it's where people spend all their time. It's where people on the front office take in customers and revenues on the back offices uh, office reconcile uh, pay bills and pay taxes. These are mission critical systems that if you land there, you win those markets, you have an unfair right to expand your offerings to that customer. That is what we believe is the makings of building a multi-product operating system, if you want to use that term, for an, an end market. We very much believe that you got to land in the right initial product. Now, at times, the control point is occupied. And so there's a number of different strategies you can manage accordingly. So during the 80s and 90s, there's a bunch of business management systems. There are licensed software products that they sold to dentists and doctor's offices and a bunch of small businesses where uh, very similar to practice management or property management systems today, they kind of run your business. Well, they're fully amortized, right? The customers aren't paying anything. And so therefore going out and trying to displace this natural control point can be quite tough. And so what we see is, and that's what's cool about this industry is there's so much innovation, there's so much changing of strategy over time, is that the new modern cloud players will basically integrate into the control point and start to surround it with various different value-add services. And over time, subsume the control point itself into the point where the, the legacy control point is really just the system record in the closet that no one ever touches, but it's, what's whole, it's sort of this, the database, so to speak, where the modern broader platform pulls off of. So, and over time you can replace that database. So there's a number of different strategies. If you can, you really do want to land in that initial control point. And again, there's usually one or two control points. And if you're lucky, you can own both or you can own the single control point for your customer. It really does set you up for the multi-product journey in a really powerful way. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. That's some inception level stuff that you can actually surround the control point through APIs. I've never thought about it that way, that with a cloud-based ecosystem, you can essentially surround the control point and go from there. I, I think that that's right. And, and the interesting part is your first or second generation cloud providers are starting to see AI wedges that are trying to integrate into the control point and start to surround. So it's, it's one of these things that's... Uh, it's kind of a recursive argument, and it's it's not to say that once you're in the control point, you you own it forever. That's the dynamic aspect to the industry, which makes it interesting. And you know, very simple way of determining what the control point is. I've, I've heard a quote that if if you have to turn off every single system in the office or the shop, which would you turn off last? Is that kind of the most basic way to think of like what's what's the control point in in, in this tech stack? I think that's right. I think particularly for SMBs, right? Most small business owners are very pragmatic and it's what's the last system to go. And there's a bunch of heuristics that you can use to to get a little bit more granular and think through it um, a little bit more strategically in terms of how do you build control over time. I think for larger mid-market enterprise customers, 
you probably do need those heuristics to better identify what's the control point for a certain function and what function ultimately uh, rules the day within an enterprise. And if you're thinking about multi-product, what control point sets you up for those multi-product uh, opportunities, whether to your existing, our language is mer merchants, which are your customers, or your merchants' customers, or your merchants' employees, and merchant suppliers. What are some of those heuristics? We talk about really three things, and and you know this is this is one of these it's a it's a living breathing framework. So I'm sure we'll add to it over time, but we we, we talk about data gravity, workflow gravity, and account gravity. Data gravity, think of it as many of the same sort of analogies to the Oracle database account ownership, which is you're the you're the biggest pool of data. The data is the most mission critical. Switching costs are really high. The data tends to be about your most valuable assets, your employees, your customers, and your money, your transactions, right? So that that those tend to be really important systems. GLs are an example. There's multiple parts of an ERP. Um, GLs are super important. Point of sale is super important. Uh, property management systems are super important. The GL obviously owns your financial data, point of sale, your sales data. Uh, your property management system owns a lot. Like in a hotel, it owns your rooms, it owns your employees, it owns your bookings and your customers. Um, so that's data gravity. Workflow gravity is the automation that allows you to do the most important things, right? And so it's think about the most important jobs to be done. A lot of times it's it's finding customers, right? That's even in low margin business where businesses where customers may not deliver a lot of profits. There's this ethos around small businesses and, and most businesses that you want to grow. And so Growing is finding, onboarding, bringing customers uh, into the platform. It's paying bills, that type of thing. Those types of gravity, they, they, they tend to compound. They're not mutually exclusive. Those are the two frameworks. The third, the third is more of a kind of common sense viewpoint, which is this, this notion of account gravity. It uh, aligns to the heuristic that you just mentioned, which is what's the last thing you turn off? What's the most important? What has the most mind share with the owner? The nice part with within uh, SMB uh, customers is that oftentimes the owner is the user or certainly very uh, close to the products. And so you have a lot of mindshare with the owner. It allows you to sell that owner multiple things. If you think about mid-market enterprise, getting back this notion of like, hey, who's the functional owner? And what's the control point for that function? It's just a very similar concept as it relates to account ownership. Got it. I also tend to think of the control point in a simple way of like, what's most in the way of the money? And I don't know if that holds any credence in the way you look at it. It really does. It's interesting they bring it up. As we think about what you do next from a, once you have a control point to offer that next product, we do think of heuristics like follow the money. Where's the money going? And so if your system X and your money goes from X to system Y, we'll look at maybe offering system Y. There's follow the workflow, which is a more generalized version of follow the money. There's single source of truth. It's data sort of pulling from other data. And so these kinds of expansion heuristics apply not only to vertical SaaS, but they also apply to horizontal applications. We have a whole other framework that's a sort of superset of a vertical SaaS knowledge product called Platforms of Compounding Greatness. At the end of the day, like our belief is that the path to growth, margin, and multiple is multi-product. That's the path to making money, to your point, follow the money. Uh, and so we're very focused as a firm on multi-product and all the heuristics and all the frameworks to support that. And look, I'm not a product guy, but I'm a CFO at a vertical SaaS company. And whenever we sit down to review the forecast over the next five years, and we're going through the revenue lines of these are the products we expect to come on live. My question to the room is, does this get us more in the way of the money in, or not? That's kind of my filter that I look through it um, in terms of what layer are we adding on next? And does this position us better in the flow of the money? I think that makes a lot of sense. I think this is a good transition just to talk a bit about how companies go multi-product because I have a sense that vertical SaaS companies tend to think about that journey sooner than maybe your typical horizontal company. Do you have any frameworks to think about going multi-product? I know there are terms out there called the layer cake and the like, but how, how do you think about multi-product in general? This might be a point of departure for most investors. I think most, at least early stage investors say, Focus on one thing, do that really well, and don't get distracted by multi-product. And, and there's good wisdom behind it. We did this study with Lone Pine, which is a very strong public investor. We have very similar philosophies. And I want to say that only 22% of public companies over a $5 billion market cap, so very big companies, are truly multi-product. So multi-product is very hard. And, and again, we have heuristics as to 
how we think you can make that easier. But they're hard to build, they're hard to sell. And so I think the the general conventional wisdom for most investors of focus on one thing, it makes a lot of sense. And I think for vertical SaaS, there is some truth to that as well, which is if the control point is the strategic high ground, go focus on building a very strong product for that category and go win the market. The, the difference though is both the offensive defensive opportunity is multi-product. The defensive perspective is to refute a lot of conventional wisdom, which is selling to these small TAMs, a lot of small businesses, limited opportunity. They don't pay a lot. They die a lot. So your churn's really high. Your GRR is really low. Multi-product is a solve for that, right? You sell, if you sell more than one product to your same end customer, your ARPU goes up, which means your LTV goes up. Guess what? Oftentimes, and most of the time, your retention goes up, right? Because... One plus one oftentimes turns out to be three or four as it relates to value to the customer and therefore stickiness. TAM is location by ARPU. If your ARPU is going up, your TAM is going up. So there's a defensive aspect to it, which is, yeah, you need to think about multi-product early to improve your sales economics and to improve the opportunity. But the offensive opportunity is that on steroids, right? If you look at some of the the most evolved, and, and, and I mentioned the great part about working with companies that are in the... 500 million AR, the billion ARs, you get to see what these things can actually become over time is that their first product ARR is still a big part of their core revenue base, but their second, third, and fourth can actually exceed that of their first. You can expand your TAM in a material way by going multi-product. So I think you want to think through a little ahead of time what the multi-product journey uh, should look like as compared to other situations. And it, that's why we published this Vertical SaaS Knowledge Project to kind of bring forward some of those experiences that, we, that we've had with some of the larger companies so that companies early in their journey can, can sort of see what the next steps are. I've read that Vertical SaaS Knowledge Project. It's really awesome. And in it, there seems to be a pattern. What's the right sequencing from your perspective of how to go about becoming multi-product? Like, sh should everyone just go to payments as second? Like, how does this work? I think your second product can be fairly straightforward. I, I do think payments is both high monetization, the entry, the product entry costs can be quite low given how great some of, some of the third-party products are, particularly Stripe. Um, it's still non-trivial to think about how to package, how to go to market, how to enable your sales team to go sell it. We should talk a little bit about this layer concept. I think there's there's a couple of flaws to it, but but one of the flaws is this idea that you know you, you add one product and you add in a layer and then you stack up the layers and you're you're great, right? You 5x the TAM, you 5x your ARPU, so makes your your CAC economics all great and life is great. The reality though is the the layer cake model is flawed for two reasons. The first reason is that it's actually quite a bit harder than people expect to add that second and third product. So we've seen these great businesses that that occupy the control point for their customers that have a really high NPS that are the incredibly well suited where after 7 8 years their tax rate on payments is 30%, right? And so you got these investors who are like, oh, "Yeah, you got 100 bucks at GMV, it's, you know, 50 bips of net take rate, we should get, you know, I don't know, 50 cents of, of net revenues, easy peasy, right? But reality is like the attach rate, because some of the nuances around sales enablement, because of some of the nuances of changing the customer experience with payments, not just swapping out the payment processor, that stuff is really important. So I, I think the layer cake itself is overstated in the short term. Over the long term, it might be understated. We can talk about that in a second. But but I think it's 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 a little bit overstated because I don't think it's quite as easy as, as you expect. I, I think in terms of sequence, I think your next product really depends on two things. It depends on what control point you're starting with and what the natural extensions are. And then what are your goals? Your goals can be ARPU uplift. They can be setting up the next set of expansions. They can be increasing your... Uh, GRR, they can be moving more towards the control. It really, really kind of depends. And so what we've actually done is, is we've launched a fairly comprehensive industry benchmarking effort where we're lining up, here's your starting point in terms of product. 
here's the cloud of probabilities of where other companies have gone. And here's the tax rate they're seeing. Here's the monetization they're seeing. So this is something I'm really passionate about. We have the theoretical frameworks of the vertical SaaS knowledge project with industry data to support that in, in what we're seeing in the world. So we're we're currently in process there. I'm, I'm really excited about that and, and more to come there. What are some of the takeaways from it? Are there certain products or entry points that are more successful than others? Well, I, I have my theories where we're out in market right now collecting the data. So maybe what we can do is a follow-up and we can go through what we expected and what we found. But, but I think the goal of it is actually have data uh, around companies as they exist today. So it's some part theory and pattern recognition, but actually real, real benchmarks. So it's so funny because I, I look for this stuff online as a practitioner where we'll be sitting down and we'll say, we should add payments, you know, then we can, you know, theoretically increase our take rate by 50%. But it's like, is it, are you even in a position to be the one to offer that payment to the end consumer or where in the ecosystem are you absorbing that payment? So like on paper, it always sounds good. But in reality, what's your success rate? And are you in a position where you deserve to, to, to get that part of the take rate? 100%. And what's good look like from a, from a tax rate and a take rate standpoint? So we're trying to address that problem in terms of both the data described, but then we also have this, I call it a, a program or a curriculum we call VSKP, Vertical SaaS Knowledge Project Collective, where we go through and we have a, like a world-class practitioner walk you through some of the nuances around what the customer experience is, what the product is, what the what the sales enabling is. Like oftentimes you're asking software people to describe take rates across three separate types of uh, uh, payments. And then, and there might be more based on the industry and then ask you, ask anybody what the price or what the take rate on a payment is and you'll get a, a 10 page answer. So understanding the incumbent's real cost is, is another, sort of sales enabling issue. So there, there's a lot of nuances to getting this right. What, what are the pros and cons of making payments mandatory? What are the situations where that's realistic, what aren't? So these are the types of things that we're trying to cover with the VSKP Collective and, and serve the uh, ecosystem. Dave, I'm not sure if this is a quote unquote layer cake strategy question or more just a business model monetization method question, but it seems that many vertical SaaS companies have both a single player and a multiplayer element to them. Do the best start as a marketplace and go SaaS or do they start as SaaS and, you know, become a marketplace? What do you see there? I think those are two separate questions, multiplayer versus marketplace. Let, let me take them slightly different. So like I, I talked about my gripe around this concept of a layer cape. The first is it probably overestimates the opportunity in the short term because of all the hard things it is to go to multi-product. Over the long term, it underestimates it because it's more like concentric circles. Because to your point, once you land... You can sell to your merchants, you can sell them a bunch of solutions, but then if you sell to your merchant suppliers, for example, well, then all of a sudden you have a footprint with your suppliers, you can start selling them other things. So for example, CCC, publicly traded software company to auto insurance, they first started selling to auto insurers with claims management. Well, the, a big part of the supply chain is the auto body repair shop, the collision shops that serve the auto insurers. And so then they then they extended to auto body repair and they built out a whole vertical SaaS suite for them. And that's a massive chunk of their TAM, a massive chunk of their profits and revenues. Then they extended one step further into a parts marketplace. This gets back to your marketplace comment. That's incredible. So in some ways, the layer cake is understanding the longer term opportunity, which is to go multi-stakeholder, which is, yeah, I, I think, the first half of, of your question. The second half, software versus marketplace is super interesting. Maybe a couple contextual points first, and I'll answer the question directly. You don't see a lot of software companies offering marketplaces, and you don't see a lot of marketplaces offering software. And we can talk to the, the pros and cons as to why. Where you do see it is overseas. And typically, the motion you see is marketplace has a nice little business, like take Australia. In, in Australia, the market is tends to be small enough, and these are old rubrics, so this will change over time. But small enough, there's a there's a, a, a leading player, a number two, maybe a number three. The first player is sixty percent market share. The second player is thirty percent market share. The sixty percent market share player is like thirty to fifty percent EBITDA margins. The second player is twenty to thirty. Awesome market structure, oligopoly. They don't compete on price. It's pretty sustainable. Well, guess what? Google comes in. Or an Indeed comes in and they disintermediate the marketplace, right? In between the consumers and the suppliers. 
Well, what do the best marketplaces do? They vertically integrate into the supplier software. And so you see that carsales.au did it in Australia. The, the ones that survived against the U.S. competitors that oftentimes have a broader economic base than the Australian or European, take your pick, company is, 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 is ones that integrate into supplier software. You also see this overseas in China and LATAM where markets may be more greenfield. And like Alibaba, when I, I was in Beijing in 04, and uh, the conventional wisdom is there's, no, there, there's going to be no e-commerce in China because there's no payment systems, there's no logistics. Well, guess what? Alibaba created their own payment system. They created their own logistics system and they ran the table and they're, they're one of the best uh, vertically integrated platforms in the world, right? You see this in, in Brazil, like you see in real estate, we've seen a rental marketplace integrate into owner software, into broker software. So you do see that vertical integration. So that's, that's where it tends to happen. All right. So if that's the context, like why doesn't this happen more often and who's better positioned? And I think it really depends on each end market. That's the caveat. And I think the nuances, how these industries form is really, really important. I'd say the pros and cons for each, each kind of archetype. A marketplace is well positioned because they tend to have ubiquity. They tend to engage with a big chunk of the suppliers and, a re- and, and they have access to demand. They have liquidity, right? If, if you don't have a reasonable chunk of suppliers, you don't really have a marketplace. People go other places to find the full selection. So that's great. The second piece is marketplaces, because they deliver demand, oftentimes can demand something like 15 to 20% take rate, very high. Whereas most vertical SaaS companies can only get 50 to 100 basis points, maybe two, three, 400 basis points if they're lucky. There's some new models that actually get higher than that, but, but let's just say 100 to 300 basis points. So the marketplaces really are in a great position because they have good economics, they have ubiquity, and they deliver demand. The stumbling blocks they have is, is, is a combination of, of factors. One is I've found that merchants, rightly or wrongly, don't tend to like marketplaces. They view marketplaces as disintermediating them from their customers. So a lot of times, like the OTAs don't pass on customer information so that supplier can't remarket. They can't get an LTV. It's a transactional model. They hate that. They feel like the marketplaces take too much of the pie. They take 20, 30, 40%. And all they're doing is, you know, in, in the supplier's mind, and I don't think this is a fair assessment, all they're doing is bidding on keywords on Google. Like, what the heck? And, and so and the, the final thing is in the marketplace itself, very rarely is the consumer experience a great one. Very rarely do these suppliers get to, to really shine. They're basically stacked up in a spreadsheet and consumers are asked to, to choose based on price. And so there's embedded sort of lack of goodwill generally with marketplaces. The other pieces from a capability standpoint, a lot of these marketplaces aren't set up to build software. They build internal systems, but they don't build third-party systems that are easily deployed by small businesses that are easily used. And so there's a product DNA. Their sales teams tend to be more aligned to more media sales, which is more of a transaction model. It's not like a a nurture mall. So that's why you've seen marketplaces try to both build product and also buy product. There aren't great examples of when that works, right? And 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 there'll be great marketplace teams that do it. And that will be a really powerful company. All right. Does that make sense? Yeah, that totally makes sense. That that was a soundbite. Clip that producer Nat. <laughs> it was a long soundbite. I tend to get pretty passionate about these things. On the vertical SaaS side, they have a couple things that that are obstacles. The first is the best vertical SaaS companies tend to get very high levels of penetration, but very few are actually ubiquitous like a marketplace is, right? And so if they're trying to launch a marketplace, the vertical SaaS has to have a threshold of liquidity that, that might be challenging, right? It's It depends on the end market, depends on how commoditized the suppliers are, but you want to have a pretty good chunk of the local market in place in order to have a consumer offering. They also don't have the same consumer DNA to go attract consumers, right? So, uh, Oh, because they're B2B, you're saying? They're B2B. They may not have some of the performance marketing DNA in-house. And then more importantly, like it's really expensive to build a consumer brand. I, I, uh, I talked to 
I have this interview with Ian, the founder of ZipRecruiter, when they went from essentially an HR software platform to into a competitor to Indeed. And he spent hundreds of millions building a consumer brand. I asked him- the candidates. Those are just people. Those aren't companies. Exactly. And they had this really clever way of harvesting candidates from prior requisitions. And so they, they had to leg up. And so I was, I was looking for like this clever way of leveraging your vertical SaaS opportunity to build out a market. It's like, he's like, no, dude, like we wrote big checks. And because you'd think they'd have asymmetrical information to prime the pump, but you're saying still, it's like you just got to plow marketing bucks in. It, it, you got to get scale. You got to get scale in, in, in a fair amount. It, it's this flywheel. It's great when it, it's running, but it's hard to build two businesses in one corporate entity. And that flywheel is expensive. I, I do think as vertical SaaS companies do hit a high level of market share, they solve the first problem. And over time, if they build a, a better consumer experience, i.e. straight through processing, digital ordering, that kind of stuff, they can just build a better consumer experience that will attract consumers over time. And B2B marketplaces are more are easier to get going. They're less fragmented than consumer marketplaces. So I think it will happen over time. I love it. You'd mentioned, uh, you know, online travel agencies intermediating between the suppliers. And I was talking to Jonathan Becker of Thrive Digital earlier this week, and it's one of the best performance marketing agencies. And I asked him for a couple of case studies on companies that he thought had used one channel for distribution beautifully. And he said, let me tell you the story about Expedia. And he was saying that they went out and basically bought all the keywords on Google and were ranking higher than like the hotels. So you would search for a hotel and Expedia would actually show up first. And so it worked, but a lot of the hotels and, you know, airlines and everything else were like, you're just like hijacking our search on the way. There's their structural advantage, right? So if you're a hotel in San Francisco, you, you get to bid on hotel in San Francisco, that keyword string. And if you're an upscale hotel, maybe there's only 10% of your, your buyers who are searching on the string are upscale buyers. And so you have a shot at 10% of, of that demand, which you paid for. Right. Expedia has high end, mid end, low end hotels. And so they, they get to monetize at a much higher rate. So they're, they're going to beat you in that auction. And they're, they're very, even the brands themselves, like the Hyatts and the Hiltons, they, they, they can't compete with the scope of Expedia. And then the other piece is it's, it's a little bit of competency, right? Like hotels are customer service, they're real estate, uh, franchise, uh, branding type of, of organizations. Expedia is a performance marketing machine. That's their DNA. If you're a hotel company, you're probably not going to beat Expedia. And there comes in that resentment, right? Which is like Expedia, like if I'm Dave's Boutique Hotel of San Francisco, Expedia might be bidding on Dave's Boutique Hotel in San Francisco keyword. And they're able to pay more than, than, than I can pay for all the reasons I just described. These third parties have a structural advantage. I'm taking us maybe a bit off the beaten path. I actually tried to build a startup in the last minute torn activity marketplace. And so like we integrated with Fair Harbor, we integrated with Peak and ResD, and it was like a very hyper local uh, last minute type thing. But I did notice that there was this inherent tension between the suppliers who were paying for demand, but like begrudgingly paying for demand and the vertical SaaS. The, the nice part about vertical SaaS is you really are very much on the merchant side. You're helping them build their business, attract revenues, and you're you have a software model. You don't have a lead gen model where where you're taking this massive chunk of the economics. I, I think in general, like I think there's nothing wrong with taking 20-30% of the economics as long as you're delivering value. And I think the challenges that a lot of market some marketplaces have, not all, some marketplaces actually are are, are actually great for merchants is that they charge equally across both existing customers that know the merchant already and then new customers that would have found the merchant anyways and then the new new customers that wouldn't have found the new new customers like if anything like if you could solve that issue if you could discriminate between those three audiences it would it, everyone would be happy I, i've talked to a lot of merchants where like if you could just show me the new new i'd be 100% the first booking that'd be a no brainer and so i think with software where you really understand the customer base you may have a CRM, you may have transactional information for the payments, and you can really discern a net new customer. I think if anything, there's an opportunity to, to charge more and have the merchant be very good for the merchant's business 
and have the merchant be very excited. So I don't want to be super negative on marketplaces. I think they're they, they're some of the best businesses in the world. I think they you know some of them do do great things for for merchants and allow merchants to really find customers, which is one of the hardest parts of building a small business. Yeah. And I love marketplaces. I mean, I, I do work for one, so I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that. Dave, I do wanna I do wanna nerd out with you on metrics for for a few minutes here. So are there any metrics in the vertical SaaS space that you think investors and operators too should hone in on more so than a typical horizontal tech investor or operator? I don't think they're necessarily distinct. I think how you value them, how they play out in the evolution of a company's life changes. So uh, there's really two growth mechanics in subscription software, and we'll leave out the fintech elements because those are, I think, fairly clear. But there's new, new and existing, right? And then there's locations by ARPU. New, new, there's all sorts of perspectives on CAC versus LTV. And what I would say there is that for us, we think about it as a curve. There's no right CAC payback. The The CAC payback that you're playing for is dependent on your NRR and what your LTV to CAC goals are. Can you say more about that? Because I think that's a critical point about it. I think early days, people get really hung up on, is it a six-month payback? Is it a nine-month payback? Is it 12, 18, 24 months? And I think that makes a lot of sense. But if your NRR is 120, well, if you, like we've done the math and it's, there's a curve. I'll give you one point of the curve. Um, if you're managing to five times LTV to CAC ratio over a five-year period. The five-year period is just like, you can't have an indefinite lifetime value because these merchants don't live forever, turns out, despite the, the financial, despite the mathematical formulas. But on that basis, you can afford to pay roughly 18 months CAC payback for a 120 NRR, right? So, so it's very situational. Now, the other piece is you could be in a, in a greenfield market where Maybe your NRR is not 120 yet, but you know what the next steps are in terms of product attached. And you think over time that, that you know, if you win the control point back to our earlier conversation, it opens up these other things. You may still want to pay. You may still want to grow on an 18 month basis. Right. What's unique is, is that we think about CAC payback versus NRR. Most good investors do that. Most most sophisticated investors don't just say, like, you got to be 12 months or you suck. Um, it, it really is dependent on what your NRR is. It's just how we think about NRR and the evolution of a company might be different than your typical investor. Maybe we break it down even further. NRR, if you disaggregate the pieces, rough and tough, the big drivers are your GRR, right? So that's one thing. Don't churn, step one. <laughs> Don't churn. That's the first path to victory. Uh, pricing, uh, multi-product and seats, right? And if you think about the evolution of a, of a customer, those levers change over time. In the initial days, seat expansion is really great, right? It's very strong as you penetrate a customer. And, and in the case of vertical SaaS, if it's SMB, oftentimes it's location penetration. Over time, that can flatten out. And so what you're really thinking about is pricing and product. As you know, in terms of our models, as we think about NRR, we may look at different components of the NRR differently. And we may look at the customer behavior over time in the cohorts differently pick up certain spots um, in a in a different way. If you connect it back to our TAM discussion, where that really comes to life is our understanding of TAM, both in terms of headroom, but then also thinking about at-bats and therefore implied win rates. And then that also puts another both governor on CAC payback, but then also it informs your strategy as to when you start pushing hard to multi-product versus just trying to win the control point. Maybe to bump it up a level, I think we think about many of the same ratios, but the way the models work, the way the ratios play out in a business can be can be different. We had spoken to Alex Clayton of Meritech Capital, and he had said that if a company has a net dollar retention of 140% or more, but a CAC payback period of under 18, he suggests that they invest more in sales and marketing, that they're leaving money on the table. I, I think that's right. I think that's right. Then, then like the... The next level question is is why like the why behind that 140, and then also like what's the demission returns on the CAC payback? But I think, trust me, yeah, like if you if you have a 140 percent NRR that's sustainable over your oldest cohorts, go bananas. 
Because net dollar retention is, in a way, kind of like a one-year measure of your LTV. And then you can use that to kind of figure out what the future cash flows of the business are, which is what the business is ultimately going to be valued upon. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. And so like like anything, like it's a one-year measure, but like you need to look at how the NRR trends over the life of these cohorts. But yeah. I've never heard it explained that way, Dave, where it's like the expansion levers change over a customer's lifetime because you can't just like continually sell them infinite seats. Like that's not a thing. It's not a thing. And and actually, if you look at the biggest pump fake that we've seen is the COVID cohorts, right? Like we actually in our you know cohort waterfalls, I wish I could visualize this for you, but like we'll actually highlight the COVID cohorts because they act differently, it turns out. Yeah, all their NDR was off the backs of companies hiring more people. And then when they stopped hiring, it's like, whoa, the water level fell like 20%. Hundred percent. Yeah, that that that's right. And so, and and both are both may be non non secular, right? They may be cyclical. Both the big massive hiring in COVID, and then the and then the weakness post COVID. So these are the nuances that we try and impact as investors. One more nuance: Should vertical SaaS companies benchmark either net dollar retention or CAC payback period? against different benchmarks compared to other tech peers? Because I see a lot of benchmarks online, but I'm like, is this relevant to a vertical SaaS company? I've had investors in the past who say, hey, you're a vertical SaaS company. You should have a much faster turnaround on your CAC payback period. And I I never know which way to go. I think the non-answer is, I think you need to be careful about saying, hey, we're totally different. So therefore, certain metrics or certain fundamental perspectives don't apply. The company evolution and the market structure might be different, but they're reflected in some of the same metrics. Those metrics might change in a different way over time, but they're they're similar metrics. I think you always should think about it from a first principles basis, right? Which is, what is CAC payback trying to measure? It's trying to measure ROIC on sales investment. We should have an ROIC investment perspective on product, which is a lot harder. Whether it's CAC payback or magic number or whatever, uh, rule of X, rule of 40, whatever, you're trying to think about what the fundamental return on invested capital measure you're, you're trying to understand or what driver of value in the case of rule of X and rule of 40, that kind of stuff. So that's the non-answer. Do I think you should have a faster CAC payback? I do think the product market fit should be stronger because you're building a product for a single industry in a single use case. So these businesses likely should be more capital efficient. The company may decide to to forward invest to go win the market, in which case extend the uh, the CAC payback, extend the economics to make it look less you know less capital efficient. But overall, I think the baseline is because these are hopefully stronger product market fit companies, the CAC payback initially should be stronger. Especially if you're doing it with like an inside sales, high velocity motion where it's more of a configuration, maybe it's free to use it first. I, I think the go to market strategy can largely dictate that. And I'm not saying that that's you know absent in horizontal companies. There are also a lot of horizontal companies that are product led growth as well, but you do see that a lot in vertical SaaS. I think the short answer is like, I think you probably should think about similar metrics and just really, really go to hard ground what the first principles are behind them. As a consumer and fan of Tidemark's content, I would love it if you did publish a survey at some point or a set of benchmarks specifically for vertical SaaS. Like, what should your NDR be? What should your CAC payback period be? Because I'm always trying to triangulate. Like, I'll take one usage-based company because my company's usage-based, or I'll take one marketplace company, but I can never find a clear-cut vertical SaaS benchmark set. It's coming. It's coming. So it'll be coming shortly. Maybe just to put a, a, a bookend on this convo, I was hoping, you know, you've seen a lot of companies who have built pretty masterfully in the vertical SaaS space. Could you maybe tell just like one story of a company that you think took a, took a cool path, particularly with their go-to-market approach? I, I, I've always thought that vertical SaaS companies have way cooler stories about how they got their customers and horizontal companies. Gosh, let me take, take one that we were talking about earlier, and I, I know you have some experience around that is a little less well-known as Fair Harbor. So uh, Fair Harbor, think of it as a website and an e-commerce platform for tourist activities. If you're a surf instructor, it helps you get online, helps you engage with these OTAs, get business, run your business, everything like that. It's run by a guy named Lawrence Hester, who's one of our fellows, and he bootstrapped the company before he 
sold it to booking and we can talk about software and marketplaces there. But what they did on the go-to-market side was super cool. It's a combination of factors that led to a really powerful organization operation. The first thing that they did was they changed the pricing model. So they offer software to small businesses who don't want to pay a lot. And the convention of the day was a subscription model. You charge the surf instructor hundred bucks a month to have this piece of software that, that takes you online and takes bookings and whatever. And you know, to that surf instructor, hundred bucks is a lot. It's hard to, to, to get people to sign up. It's hard to squeeze that hundred bucks off. What Fair Harbor did is they totally flipped the model. Rather than charge the surf instructor, they charged two things. They charged a booking fee to the, the tourist, and then they charged a, uh, a payments fee in order to take the payments. Well, the, the advantage of that approach is the booking fee, the surf instructor didn't see that. And, and by the way, if you're a tourist to Hawaii and this is like your one week in the sun, you're really stoked about getting a surf lesson on Waikiki. Well, you know, like a $10 booking fee doesn't matter. Yeah, 7% more. Take my money. I'm going surfing. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter. But the, the, the result of that, and then likewise payments, like the, the surf instructor was paying payments anyways for Square or whatever. And so it's something that they paid for anyway. So not a big deal. And so what Fair Harbor did is they totally changed the economic uh, capture. So rather than capturing a hundred bucks a month, they're now capturing, I don't know, eight, 10% of a booking, which is dramatically higher stakes. And so what, because they had much higher LTV, and this is a great sort of parallel to the multi-product discussions they had because they had much higher LTV, what they, what they could do is they could, they could go to that surf instructor and rather than say, hey, here's a piece of software you should buy, say, hey, man, uh, would you like to be online? I've built your site for you already. They had enough economics where they actually built the first site. They could take bookings. And so it's just like, hey, it's already working. Sign up, right? The next step that they did was because the surf instructor wasn't super reliable, as perhaps these stereotypes go. Uh, or maybe they're so busy working, they couldn't answer the phone. Fair Harbor started taking the, uh, answering the phones directly as well. And so what happened is they became the revenue engine and they could afford people that were offering high service and delivering a lot of value because they changed the pricing model. They paired this with a bunch of uh, folks out of college who were super hungry and said, this is incredibly great business for us. We'll give you half of the first year's bookings for every customer you sign. And so you had these young kids making hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars. There's a great story of, I think it was Lawrence's brother who was like, I'm going to sign up every single merchant, every single tour operator in, in Hawaii and basically bought a van, slept in his van and basically drove to every tour operator and wouldn't leave until that, that, that tour operator signed. So like, it's a great story of like changing the monetization model changing the offering as a result, and then like super scrapping it. So I always love what Lawrence did at Fair Harbor. And, and there's just so many more of these as you, as you unpack kind of this vertical SaaS landscape. I love it. Let's leave listeners with that. Dave, thanks for being generous with your time. If, if people want more of you or more of Tidemark, where should they go? Yeah, just come to our site. We, we, we do publish quite a bit. Subscribe to the Vertical SaaS Knowledge Project. Send us an email. We're, we're pretty easy to get a hold of. The other thing is we that we have a Twitter handle. I'll put it in the show notes and that covers both our stuff, but then also great stuff we see out in the web. Thanks. And I just want to personally thank you because the content you put out, it's made me better at my job. So appreciate it, Dave. Uh, it's so great to hear. Yeah, we put a lot into it and excited when it gets used. So uh, stoked to hear that. Roll the credits, producer Nancy. The Run the Numbers podcast is part of the Turpentine Network of Podcasts. It is produced by Nancy Shu and edited by Justin Golden. Artwork made by some AI thing. Yelling an intro by Fat Joe. Don't forget to give us five stars. I really need this.